Um, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Christian, if you don't uh, already know me. And uh, shout out to all you Ekbalo folks. This morning was, was really, a, really a beautiful, beautiful, it's emotional even place for me. Um, the, the last, it's probably even three years uh, that I've gotten just to play a very small part in the Ekbalo um, in their school, where I get to teach on, usually on Fridays. But in that, I think I, I've just really come to, to value how this community values prayer and values worship to the point of sacrifice. And, and they are doing it around a group of young people that are supposed to be in the most selfish season of their lives. And, and every time I'm around them, I feel like I just pick up on the heart of God who completely meets us in our desperation and need and replaces the way of the world with the way of the kingdom. And I think one of the most practical things, when you can start to see people that are supposed to be selfish, and I don't even mean it like ugly selfish, I just mean like normal selfish, because we're all normal selfish, right? Like I'm, I'm normal selfish every time I wake up. I want my selfish coffee. I want my selfish quiet time. I want my selfish alone time at these parts of the day. I want my selfish schedule. I, every last element of my life, even though I have, I have resisted it my entire life, we're resisting self. And, and I think that they, you guys scream out that would you, would you come into the way of Jesus? Would you sit with him, worship with him, pray with him, be with him? And, and the overflow of that is, is, is intimacy, is connection, is belonging, is identity, is purpose. And so I just want to honor you guys. It's just, it's always so great. Many of you are already a part of our community, but when, when there's even more of you around in your full teams, it's just really a, really a tingling, positive feeling. I do feel like I should also say something about what's on my feet. They are, they are super obnoxious. There they are. Bam. Um, I've, I've been wearing some version of Birkenstocks for about the last six years of my life, mostly because no one has come out with something for my feet that, that are as comfortable. Um, and I, sometimes they're in style, sometimes they're not. You know, when your parents start wearing Birkenstocks, you start to wonder, is this still cool? I don't know, but I don't even care. My parents are pretty cool, so... <laughs> so, so this is uh, this is also just a shout out to Preachers and Sneakers, which is uh, a, a, an Instagram account. They usually start with shoes in the like six hundred dollar range. Uh, if you don't know this, there's literally an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers, and where they basically make fun of preachers that wear really expensive sneakers. And so, whatever these are, seventy dollar Vans that I was given by uh, by Johnny. Is Johnny even here? Johnny's not even here, is he, Tim? Yeah, well, I'm not going to wear them again, Johnny, so you, this has been your, your moment. Um, but it was also a debate, and I just want to take a show of hands just to kind of break the ice a little bit. Um, I, I come from the conviction, not from California, that if you are over the age of 15 or not from California, that vans are completely inappropriate. That's just my conviction. Do, 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 I, do I have an amen by anyone in the house? Like, is, is, does that resonate with anyone's spirit or heart? Yeah, I see some dis dissension. Those of you that are from California, anyone not from California that has a different opinion about that? Okay, now there we go, silence. I win. <laughs> Moving on to the message. Okay, today's word is uh, why we rely on the word and spirit. If you're just jumping in today, we've been on a kind of a, a fall mini vision series uh, reestablishing. If you walk in the back, you'll see we have four kind of uh, anchors or pillars of our values. Uh, they are something to the effect of that we rely on the Word and Spirit, uh, and then we're anchored by the beauty of holiness, that we believe that the gospel 
has power and that we're a missional family. So thus far, we've talked about holiness and we've talked about being a missional family. This week, I want to talk about the reliance on the Word and Spirit. And I want to start with a question. Is the world actually getting more secular, or is that just the information we've been fed? The Washington Post had an article that came out um, some time ago that said, the world is expected to become more religious, not less. Huh. Interesting. Would you like to hear a little more about what the research found? Because I think it's important that we actually know what we're dealing with. I don't think there's anyone out there that's trying to lie to us. This is the Washington Post. As far as I know, they're not Christianity Today. Uh, they're the Washington Post. They, they aren't trying to feed us anything, uh, at least on our, on our team, if there's teams. I hate using teams. But the reality is, is that if they're even saying the world's not becoming more secular, maybe we need to pay attention. While acknowledging that in the United States and Europe, the percentage of people without religious affiliation will be rising for the time being, the article distilled the research findings, namely that in the world, overall religion is growing steadily and strongly. Christians and Muslims will make up increasing percentages of the world's population, while the proportion that is secular will shrink. Jack Goldstone, professor of public policy at George Mason, said this, sociologists jumped the gun when they said the growth of modernization would bring a growth of secularization and unbelief. That is not what we're seeing, he said. People need religion. They're not even getting into Christianity. This guy is a sociologist at a real university with a real degree, and he's saying the findings show that people need religion. They need faith. There was actually a Pew study that said that, however um, threatened all deeply held beliefs are about why people are religious, they said that not long ago, leading scholars in Western society were also nearly unanimous in thinking that religion was inevitably declining. That was the across-the-board unanimous thinking. They thought the need for religion would go away as science provided explanations and an aid agent against the natural elements better than God ever did. And then our musicians would write songs like John Lennon did in 1966. This has been a way of thinking for decades. John Lennon said this. He said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and it will shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and will be proved right. John Lennon. He can write some good songs, doesn't mean they're right. However, this hasn't happened as advertised. As the Pew study proves, religion is on the rise. And the emergence of the more strident and outspoken new atheists, we all hear, I mean, I've seen a million, uh, you know, clips on YouTube, social media from the new atheists that are, that are talking about things like this. They may be, in fact, a reaction to the persistence and even resurgence of vibrant religion. Nor is the flourishing of faith happening right among less educated people. That's another deeply held belief, is that this is just an issue of education. If you're educated, you'll realize that there's no need for faith. Over the last generation, philosophers uh, such as Alistair McIntyre, Charles Taylor, and Alvin Platinga have all produced a major body of scholarly work supporting belief in God and critiquing modern secularism in ways that are not easy for secularists to answer. I'm saying all this because I think we as Christians, we take a lot of punches in society. We see a lot of things as we read the news, as we scroll, as, as our friends both in the church, outside the church, and somewhere in between are starting to ask questions. And, and while we can keep our convictions, while we can keep our faith in some way, shape, and form, there are these elements that attack our minds, that attack our confidence, that attack why we stand on certain historical, orthodox beliefs of the faith. 
And I think we need to be reminded that sometimes the diet we're fed is not a diet of truth. And I'm not that guy that's just telling you not to believe every last thing you ever read in any news source. I actually think that there is a way. We live in a, in a time where no, no one person or organization owns the sources of our news. So therefore, there is potential to get out, whether it's news or truth or any kind of message, from anyone, anywhere. You just have to learn how to filter things. And Christians have been really good at filtering things. And I, I invite you to start to filter your heart to how you feel the opportunity is and where we're placed in the world and our purpose is in it. Demographers tell us that the 21st century will be less secular than the 20th. It will be. There have been seismic religious shifts toward Christianity in sub-Saharan Africa, China, while um, evangelicalism and Pentecostalism have grown exponentially in Latin America, even in the United States. The growth of the nuns has been mainly among those who had been more nominal in their relationship to faith, while the devoutly religious in the United States and Europe are growing. Wow. Last thing, belief in God makes sense to four out of five people in this world. Four out of five. I must admit, I have been walking around, especially the last couple years, convinced in my subconscious that if I would approach anyone on a conversation with faith, they would probably not be interested. Sometimes facts stir up what's already inside you. I literally had my heart jump out of my chest when I realized there are four out of five people on this planet that already have a belief in God. They're ready for the seeds of the gospel to make sense. They need someone to initiate conversation. They need someone to initiate life. They need someone to initiate a meal. They need someone to initiate some exchange of an alternative way of living in this world. They want it. Four out of five people on this earth. And that goes for this city. It goes for Pasadena, Los Angeles, California. And if we are living under a lie of what the world is actually wrestling with, we will never have the confidence to step into it with any confidence. So I close with this. Why did religion still grow amid so much secular opposition? That's a question we need to sit with. Some might answer that most people in the world are simply undereducated, while others might be a bit more blunt and respond because most people are idiots. That's what you're going to get out of the little bit of sound bites that you get on Instagram. But a more thoughtful, less misanthropic answer is in order, to quote Keller. There are two good answers to the question of why religion continues to persist and grow. The first is this. One explanation is that many people find secular reason to have things missing from it that are necessary to live life well. They know something is missing to be able to live this life. And second, that great numbers of people intuitively sense a transcendent realm beyond this natural world. There is something in the human created order. We are all created in the imago Dei, the image of God. Therefore, the most natural thing in the world is for a human being to know there has to be something more than this. And that's our invitation. So in this series, uh, we're revisiting our foundations, but today I want to revisit why we rely on the Word and the Spirit. If you turn to Acts 2, uh, Acts 2 is that, that image. I'm not going to um, teach on Acts 2 today. I'm actually going to go into Luke a little bit. But I want to remind us, at Pentecost in Acts 2, it is, it is the outflowing, outpouring of the Holy Spirit where the church is birthed and launched into a new covenant, into a new season. And what happens there is, is 
all the people are being accused of being drunk because the Holy Spirit is taking over. There's tongues of fire. There, there's, there's healings. People are, are all over the place and on the street, and, and everyone thinks that these, these Christians are nuts. And then two things happen. Peter gets up, the guy that denied Christ previously, a matter of days before. And he starts reminding them of what the Word of God has said about the prophets. And he does two things. He quotes the prophets, and then he quotes David. Both sources that are supposed to mean to the people that what you are seeing is something that is sound. It's something that has been anchored in our community and in history. And that what you are seeing now is a convergence of the Word of God and the Spirit of God for the purposes of God on the earth. It's for your old men, and it's for your young men. Those that dream dreams, and those that see visions, it's for everyone. Now is your moment. And he ends that, and he says in verses uh, 41, those who accepted this message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. We know these verses well. Everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property, possessions, and gave it to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I want us to see just a few things from this passage. Uh, first, those who believed. There, there were several steps that had, that had to happen in the life of a believer and in the early church. And this is just a tidbit window. First of all, God wants us to believe. There has to be an exchange of faith. Secondly, he wants us to be baptized. Third, there's a joining of a family. There's a joining of a family. They're committed to themselves and to the apostles' teaching. They commit to worship. And they connect to small groups for community, fellowship, purpose. These were non-negotiable. But here's the thing that happened in this community, is that this is Acts 2. All of a sudden, it's like this fire. How does Luke, the author, end that chapter? Real life. He ends it with real life. Because who cares about a bunch of people with tongues of fire and miracles if we don't know what this flipping looks like in real life? And he goes, this is what it looked like. Here are the basics of the faith of those who follow Jesus, that are filled with his word, that are based on the spirit and the word. Reliance on the word and spirit looks like this. They believe. They're baptized. They join a church family. They commit to regular worship. And they connect not just in the temple courts, but house to house. Can we stop overcomplicating the Christian life? If we simplify it, I believe that is the way that the power of God can most effectively unleash. If we commit to the simple things and allow the powerful things to nurture us, to shock us, to make us uncomfortable, but also to help us endure, to help us struggle. These were people that had real needs, and, and, and they don't miss in the midst of the power and the fire, the fact that, like, our people need to eat. Our people need a roof over their heads. So let's sell some stuff. Let's help each other out. Let's do real life. Let's love each other. Let's meet in our homes. Let's break bread. They did real life. And sometimes in our pursuit of the fire of God, we forget about the daily life. The local church is never going to be the local church that Jesus intended when we exchange one for the other. That is the heart of the word and the spirit. 
So we have to rely on the Spirit. Jesus did. Real briefly, why do we rely on the Spirit? First and foremost, this was the way of Jesus. It said he didn't do anything but by the Spirit of God. His ministry started by being led by the Spirit, and everything he did was by the Spirit. He said uh, he, he literally put aside, in some ways, his ability to do everything out of his divinity because he was fully God and fully man. And he chose then to submit himself to the Father by the Holy Spirit, and everything Jesus did was by Spirit of God, what are you doing? Why? So that he could do a couple things, show what it looks like when the Spirit of God is completely unleashed without any restrictions, perfectly. Secondly, it was to say, I'm not doing this because I'm God. I'm showing you how to live, which is why he would confront the disciples. You walk on water. You feed them. You heal them. Over and over and over again, he, he confronts them, and he invites them to do as he did. And then his commission is, teach them to do everything that I taught you. And that's the gospel. The Spirit is what resides in us for our sake, but what rests upon us is for others' sake. I believe that the disciples already had the Holy Spirit residing in them. The followers of Jesus were already believers of Christ. What they didn't have was the Spirit of God resting upon them for the purpose of impact. And at Pentecost is that picture that the Spirit of God is meant to rest upon every believer for the purpose of the world being invited into a family. And God is so passionate about everyone coming into his family that he's willing to reach out and show you that I, I know your language. I know your voice. Can you hear your mother tongue and come in? That was the original evangelistic crusade was everyone that was there during the high feast. They're coming from all different nations. They had all different languages. And these languages weren't just random. They were there so that they could say, the one true God knows your name. He knows your voice. He can speak your language, and he's inviting you into his family. And But for the lo local church, you cannot, you cannot separate reliance of the word and reliance on the spirit. And I want to talk for a few minutes on why we rely on, this, on the word of God. Uh, so turn really quickly to Luke 1. Uh, so we're basically looking today only at Luke's words. Luke wrote Acts, and, and in his, uh, his gospel, I want to look at the very beginning and the very end. And, and, and I want to say this, um, especially when we look at the Word of God, which is kind of feels like it's been under attack. Uh, I remember even just sitting, I went to a secular university. I didn't have a whole lot of classes that delve, delved into to things like religious faith and so forth, but I do remember the overarching assumption is that there's like a lot of questions about the validity of this Bible. It's totally cool. You can believe whatever you want, but educated people really don't delve into this book. There's a lot of major questions about it, and there's a lot of problems with it. Um, I've, I've been kind of doing a nosedive into... Um, some, some work by Tim Keller, who currently has cancer, and he's, he's written extensively and worked in New York City for years. And I've kind of been inspired by some of the things that he said, and I want to take some of those things, and I, and I want us to anchor our hearts on the Word of God in a way that maybe you haven't done it before. Is that fair? Also, I feel like, I don't know if the air is on on both. I didn't check them this morning, but if, if one of the folks that knows how to double-check the air, there's one in the back and one in the front, just double-check it, make sure that we got airflow. It might just be the fact that I'm wearing this and I'm hot. If not, Thank you. All right, so why, why believe it? Why believe the Word? And why make it the foundation of your life? Number one, because it's the truth. <laughs> number two, because the truth is about a man. And number three, it's not just for the mind, it's for your heart. So Luke 1 says this. 
Luke starts his gospel with, with talking about his eyewitness account. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses, servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Now, this is one of the most boring couple sentences in the entire gospel. Why does that even matter, right? I mean, usually, like, if, if, you're, if you're having a message on the, on the beginning of Luke, the pastor's never going to read those sentences. Why would you read those sentences? You read those sentences because they don't sound like the rest of the book. Because Luke is setting up his entire gospel account using language that is basically saying, this is real. This is documented eyewitness, could go to court and be proven true account. Believe it. In the ancient world, eyewitness testimony was the most reliable form of any kind in the courts. They're basically saying, Everything that is needed in order for this to be proven trustworthy is at your disposal. Check and see. And so one of the problems we have with our cultural assumptions that you might have picked up in your own secular education or just being a human being that breathes air is the reality that many believe that the Bible is composed of legends that were orally transmitted for generations, and then we got some scripture. Not true. Also, they believe that there were many, uh, like more than these four supported gospels. And, and the reason why they chose these four supported gospels is because it gave the power structure at the time uh, ammo so that they could continue their power over everyone else. And thirdly, there, were, there, were all, there was also this wide-ranging belief and has been that all other gospels were left on the cutting room floor, meaning that there were like many other gospels. Now, is it true that there were other kinds of gospels? Yes. Uh, but what, what they want us to believe, what they want society to believe, is that there were all kinds of other documents that, that had just been left out because they were inconvenient to pull in. The, and the problem that Keller would argue is with this is just one thing, and that's that all these assumptions are 100% wrong. Many Christians, though, find themselves. I mean, think about, think about what's happening, and I'm watching this happen. I'm watching this happen for, for young people. Instead of coming to an ekbalo between the ages of 18 to 25 and, and, being, and being fed a diet of kingdom and worship and presence and prayer, most are going, even from a Christian home, they're going to a university, and they're being fed a diet that completely disrupts and questions everything they may have been taught or not been taught. And you've got all these open, open spirits, open souls, uh, no matter how well they've been trained, and everything that's been brought to them is a question mark. And I think you and I are being affected by it as well. It's not just our 18-year-olds going off to college as freshmen. And many of us have visited these kinds of things, and I feel like we're in a fresh season where I would, I would like to present to you that when you are inspired by the reality that this book that we base our entire life's on. When you rediscover why it has sustained thousands of years, I really believe that we are going to find a rejuvenated life force to remind ourselves of what we're doing, how we are to organize our lives, how we are to teach the children, the youth, ourselves in such a way that we're not intimidated by the conversations of the community and of the culture, we invite them. Alpha is not, an, is not a thing we do 
so that we ignore the conversations of the world and we just tell them what we want to talk about. Alpha is an opportunity to listen to the conversations, the stories, the wrestling of the world. And to just be present with it and to form deep friendships and allow the Spirit of God to move. That's it. But I think when we don't attend to the deepest parts of our heart, there are questions that seep into all of us. And I think what, one of the things that our church, what we are positioned to be, is a kind of church that knows why we rely on the Word and knows why we rely on the Spirit. And we can show you why it works, why it's true, how it hits my head and my heart. All the Gospels were written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. I'm not going to go into all this stuff because it's going to bore you to death because there are books this thick. To give you one example, there was this thing called P52, which was just a fragment uh, that was discovered of John 18. It's from 110 AD in Egypt, and it proves the fact that the Gospel of John, the last gospel, the last gospel that was written, was written still in 85 to 90 AD, which means what? It proves that every single gospel account that we have in our scriptures today was written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses that wrote them. The funny thing is, is no one could prove that for thousands of years, and no one cared. Why do we care now? It's because we're so educated, and we have so much evidence and research. And every time they find new evidence, it just confirms what the church has believed for thousands of years. And I'd like to present to you, if you've got questions, <laughs> you can hold God hostage at your question, like you've been the first one to ever have a question, the question of faith or his word or his spirit or anything else. But the reality is, is that God in his kindness continually answers some of the deepest questions of life. He doesn't need to do this. Because you can go to the Word, and you can live the Word, and you can find that it's true. I found that this was true before I knew anything about evidence. I knew this as a child. We're not waiting for our children to get old enough that we can have some kind of philosophical debate about the research and the evidence and the archaeological findings. How boring would that be anyway? Uh, the reality is, though, is that it's important that Christians know that there is educated, reliable, doctoral research that shows the reality that what we have based our faith on for thousands of years is anchored in truth. And I want you to remind yourself of that today. Do the Gospels help Christian leaders consolidate their power? The answer to that is that all the early Christian leaders thought that they were heirs to the apostles. But in the Gospels, how do the apostles look? They look like morons. They wrote a gospel where the apostles themselves look stupid at every single instance. Every other leader of, the, of, of other world religions then dies in a completely serene, peaceful state. You can look at Muhammad. You can look at Buddha. All, these, all the other faiths of the world religions, they die perfectly peaceful and serene. The founder of Christianity dies tormented and screaming at his father, Why? that he's been forsaken. You do not write that if you're fabricating evidence. You write it because it's true. So why do we believe the Bible? Don't believe the Bible because it's exciting, even though it is. Don't believe it because it meets your needs, even though it will. Believe it because it happened and because it's true. And only if it happened and only if it's true will it meet your needs. And secondly, it's the truth about a man. 
we must understand what's really, what it's really saying about this man, about Jesus. And really quickly, I want to look at the very end of Luke on the road to Emmaus. This is after Jesus has died. Thank you. Bless you in Jesus' mighty name. So on the road to Emmaus, this is the very end of Luke's gospel. Jesus comes along these people that are, are leaving Jerusalem, and they're lost. And they're wondering, what the heck do we do now? And Jesus interrupts their conversation. They're questioning everything that they've seen. They're, 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 they're dedicated, believing followers, and they're lost. Why? Because they've lost their leader. They don't know what to do. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes in, and he starts arguing with them. And he says, how foolish are you, and how slow to believe all the prophets that have spoken. So he relies again on the word. But then he enters in, and he has an encounter with them. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what it was that was said in the Scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at a table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And as he broke the bread, then their eyes were opened. They recognized him. As he did the thing, where they had had moments where their lives were formed around the table where the Savior breaks bread and hands it. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. If that's not the freakiest gospel story that is in existence, that we just kind of gloss over, Then they asked each other, in hindsight, when they didn't know who he was, weren't our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? What is that burning in their hearts? That burning is this merging between the word of God and the spirit of God. Jesus comes in with an argument. The prophets said this, and they don't get it still. They're still with them. It didn't matter what argument. It didn't matter how well trained they were. They still didn't get it. It still mattered. Jesus still brought it to the table, but it wasn't until the breaking of bread and the Spirit of God invading that their eyes are opened. We cannot have a gospel with just the Word of God, and we cannot have a gospel with just the Spirit of God. We will never be sustained unless we take the full meal. Take the meal. So a stranger shows up, and he asks what's going on. That's what's happening in this story. Jesus tells them, how foolish you are. You read your Bible, you believe it, but you can't understand the most basic truth. And then he gives them the gospel. He explains all that's happened in the scriptures. He goes through the entire Bible with them. What is he doing? He's showing them in the entire scriptures, from Genesis, and in their case, through the prophets, that it's all talking about him. Not just a couple scriptures. The entire thing is the fulfillment of the Messiah. And he shows them where he is. It's about a man. It's the truth, and it's the truth about a man. So I want to give one final example of, of how something that I think is really helpful. That, that, um... So this professor in England had some students read the Sermon on the Mount. 
And most of us, and even in, in society, they would say, okay, Sermon on the Mount, we, if you don't know a word that's been said, you know of it. Okay, Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Great. And no one's really, if you walk around, most people aren't offended at Jesus. They're offended at Christians. So it was interesting how this, this professor gave the assignment, read the Sermon on the Mount, and give some feedback from the students. The students hated it when they actually read it. Why? They said things like this. I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect. Another student said, the things the sermon asks are completely absurd. And they noted things like this. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't just say to give your money away, but to do so with joyful, cheerful, and generous passion. It doesn't just, say, it doesn't just forbid killing, but it forbids disdain, superiority, treating someone with coldness or indifference. It doesn't just forbid paying someone back who persecutes you. It insists your heart be filled with love, with hope, with prayer for the person persecuting you. And it does not just say to avoid worry. It says to be happy and content with whatever God is sending into your life. So why were they devastated by the Sermon on the Mount? They're devastated because we want to live around people like this. They want to live around people like this. You and I want to live around people like this. The problem is, is that it torments, it torments every cell in our being when we realize that we cannot just be around these kind of people if we aren't willing to live like these people. We want to be around them, but the underlining assumption is that I ought to be like one of these people, and I can't. The most natural thing in the world is for the world to read Jesus' most famous sermon that summarizes everything his ministry was about and to feel absolute conflict and discouragement because it is impossible if it's the status of your life to live by it. Because the way of the world, the underlying thing is that I have to try to do that. And what Jesus is trying to say is that you absolutely cannot do that. And even some of you right now are kind of like going gulp, like, oh, what the, what? And because we're still completely living in the tension between trying to live the Christian life and allowing ourselves to be bought, purchased, and living in an absolutely grace-filled reality where I wake up every day completely aware that I cannot do this. And only when you surrender to the impossibility of his invitation and his message can you even make a dent to be one of these people where people are like, I want to have that person in my life, but I struggle. It, the most natural thing in the world is for people to look at you and see your reality, your humanity, your imperfection, but also say, I wish I could be like that person. I ought to be like that person, and I wrestle with the fact that I'm not like that person, and I try to be like that person, and I can't do it. And you have a conversation. You have an opportunity. And the goal is not hide. So much of the church is like, hide all the crap around us so that we falsely look like this. That's not the sermon. That's not the gospel. The apostles themselves are continually shown to be absolute idiots. And that is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. So they're devastated by the sermon because we want to live around people like that. We ought to live like this, and we cannot live like this. So if you just read the book as true statements and thoughts and laws and are not terrified like these students, you actually aren't reading the book, and most people haven't read the book, and most Christians haven't listened to the book that they've read a million times. Mark Twain had nightmares about this. I think, I think Keller said something about he had this dream about this enormous Bible on his chest suffocating him. That's how Mark Twain saw the Bible. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones said that anyone who really reads it will close it and pray, God save me from the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) The point is this. Jesus says to them that it's all about me. It's all about a man. And I'm the only one who has lived the Sermon on the Mount. And the gospel then becomes Jesus saying, I did it. I, I earned God's blessing. But then I went to the cross and I took God's curse. So that what I deserve, I give to you. What you deserve, I take upon my shoulders. If you rest in me. And his invitation is come and rest. The world right now. They're not going to hear our garbage on sin, fire, and brimstone. They are going to hear our message on true rest from the anxiety, the overwhelmness. And we can't just stop there and give them these little self-help things and say, hey, yep, amen, you're doing it basically as long as you get therapy. Who cares who's giving you therapy? It doesn't really matter. The the reality is, is that might be a great start because the world is so aware that they need help. And that's why we live in a world, and I'm so thankful for the reality like Simone Biles. Because as much pushback as she got about what she did, if you don't know what happened, we had a, the, the best gymnast that's probably ever lived. She pulls out of the Olympics because of mental health. And yes, there was a lot of ugly pushback against her, but the reality is the overarching from the news sources and everyone down the line, the overarching thing is support for her. Thank God someone is willing to actually recognize and take care of their mental health. Why? Because the world is trying to demolish our mental health all the time, and everyone is aware that mental health is tormenting people every day of our lives. The overarching response from the world is, oh, thank God someone said something. And if you've ever struggled with mental health, you are not criticizing her. And this wasn't to be any sort of Olympic or political or whatever else. It's nothing other than the reality that the world knows at least to some degree what its problems are. And often the church is those that are like, oh, you're missing it completely. Instead of looking at where our place of a voice is welcome. And our place of a voice is welcome when we start saying, enter my rest. Did you know that Jesus' message was all about entering rest? So if you've got mental health issues, if you're literally dying from anxiety, if you're feeling completely isolated and alone, come, enter my rest. Do you understand what Jesus is talking about? Let them experience Jesus. If you're experiencing him, by experiencing him, you're entering into an invitation to the rest of your life to align with him. And we want alignment before we let people actually taste and see that he's good. We say, this is where we stand for. If you don't align with this, get the flip out. Instead of saying, where are you hurting? Where does Jesus meet the pain? Let him meet the pain. Let let him touch the pain. And then let the Spirit of God come and work in, and then don't be ashamed of what the gospel really is. And the church gets one thing right and the other thing wrong. we got half the church that's saying, here's where you have to align. The other half saying, you don't have to align. And how hard does it have to be to just say, it's the Word and it's the Spirit of God. When we align with that, everything else gets a whole lot more simple. And if we become the kind of people that can step into that tension, we will not have to worry about what the culture is doing. We will know who we are, where we're going, what we're inviting people into. Can somebody say, that is what I want to be a part of? It all points to him. All the laws, all the stories, all the prophets. from Joseph, David, Jonah, Moses, they all tell a story 
They all lay down their lives. And Jesus comes in and tells them, I was the Moses. I was the Jonah that put his life on the line. I was David. I was Joseph that saved the family. Because when you see the truth, it will affect not just your mind, but it will affect your heart. And what happened on the road to Emmaus was they had an encounter where their mind and their heart aligned. And today I want us to offer ourselves to the Lord for an encounter for the mind and the heart, the word and the spirit, to touch us, refresh us, and compel us again back to the mission of what we're to be about. Okay, so let's land this. And worship team, you can start to come up. False religion does this to us. It gives us a false focus on effort. We try hard to obey, and it doesn't change our heart. The result then becomes, it makes you self-absorbed. The cultural alternative that we are to be about does this. We're not focused on self. We are reminded continually that God's grace was supreme cost to him himself. He gave. And the gospel stops us from comparing. It stops us from this life that is anything but a pure, clean, selfless act of sacrifice and love. And it stops crushing the self-absorbed, impossible standard. The way of the world will crush you. The way of the kingdom will set you free. It'll restore you. It changes the fundamental structures of your heart. How do you get there? You get there by breaking bread. And I realize we didn't put communion out. If someone knows where it is in the back and wants to start to put it out during worship, that's great. But I want us to remember the table. Remember the table. And close your eyes. I just want to close and say a few words over you. Get that picture of the Lord at the table breaking bread with the cup that symbolizes his sacrificial blood and with the, with the bread, his body. How the very sound, the very smell would do something to the senses of his followers. Let it do something to your senses today. Let it, let, it, let it take your head and let it take your heart. Let it anchor you in his word and on his spirit. Because the breaking of bread does two things. It, it symbolizes friendship. You have to have communion with a friend to break bread with them. And it symbolizes worship. What is it that I put my life after? What is it that I worship? What is it that replaces all the idols that I could worship of this world? When we break the bread, friendship and worship. And if you aren't sure where you are at with faith or you're wrestling with something that you just can't shake, I invite you into just having a relationship with someone that has a relationship with Jesus, that you know that you are safe with them, that you can break bread with them, that you can do life with them, that you can worship with them, even if you don't feel like you can worship yourself without being fake, just be present. And those of you that are confident in this, be reminded that the world wants an invitation into this way of life. You don't have to figure your entire mess out until you invite people in. Who are you inviting to the table? Who are you inviting to break bread with? And some of you, it's coming from a place of just, 
you just know that you aren't perfect. You just know that you don't, you don't feel like you've got much to give. And I just, want to, I just want, to, I want to invite you again today to be reminded of who you are when he says you're a son or a daughter. When the voice of God affirms you. And I feel there's some in the room that need to hear that voice again. They need that affirmation again. The invitation today is to ask the Lord as we take, as we, whether you're taking it or whether you're at your seat or you're just having a, a moment with the Lord, reveal yourself to me, Lord Jesus. Reveal yourself again. Be real. Be real. It's not possible to have that exchange without the work of the Spirit confirming the truth of the Word. We rely on the word and the spirit. Would you stand? Stand with me. I think these guys are going to worship for a little bit. I want to invite you as they're worshiping to come forward. You can take communion. Uh, You can stay up here. If there is something in your life that you need to get right with the Lord. It doesn't mean that you have to have some kind of like ongoing sin issue. It doesn't mean that you have to be far from God. I just mean if your prayer today is, God, be real to me. Reveal yourself to me. Whether that's happened a thousand times, if you know today you need that in a fresh way, I want you to stay up here and worship. And we're going to have a team that will come around and just lay hands on you, um, ministry team, if you could just put your masks on when you're ministering, that'd be great. Respond in a way that the presence of God and the Spirit of God can confirm the Word of God in your life, to reveal Himself to you, to refresh you, and to be real to you. Take a moment, let your mind dwell on the truth of the Word. Let your spirit be touched and filled with God's Spirit, and commit yourself to a complete and utter dedication of your life to the reliance on the Word of God, and reliance on the Spirit of God. Take us away, Joe.